We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 76 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, June 3rd, 2021, the day after the end of the Wizards 2020-2021 season. Yes, it's all over. The Wizards are done. A very disappointing 129-112 loss at the Philadelphia 76ers to lose in the first round of the NBA playoffs, four games to one. 42nd consecutive season in which the Wizards slash Bullets do not advance past the second round of the NBA playoffs. The drought continues. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. Exactly. You know, if you'd have told me two years ago that the Wizards in June 2021 would still be playing, I would have been giddy. Wow, they make the NBA finals in 2021. Uh, yeah, not quite. My takes on game five and on what needs to be next for the Wizards coming up next segment. This sets up to be a massive offseason for the Wizards. But hello and welcome to a loaded Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. I have a ton for you on this show on the Washington football team. Ron Rivera, Jack Del Rio, Taylor Heineke, among those who spoke on Wednesday after Washington's OTA practice, which was open to the media. There's a lot to go through. Go through it, we shall. No other show or podcast covers the Washington football team like this podcast. I promise you that. Everything that you need to hear from the post-practice Zoom press conferences on Wednesday, you will be hearing on this installment of the pod. And I'm going to get into a lot of important and, I think, interesting items. Ron Rivera talking up expectations 
for Antonio Gibson. Steven Montez participating in some non-quarterback drills. Could he become Washington's version of Taysom Hill? Jack Del Rio with a great answer to a question about Jamin Davis. We'll do some scheduled fun with that. Also, the Nationals and the Orioles, each team now with a two-game winning streak, each team winning again on Wednesday night. I'll talk about what went down for the Nats and their impressive win at the Atlanta Braves. That was one of the better wins for the Nationals so far this season. And uh, we'll also get into the O's, their victory over the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So, one of the greatest villains, one of the greatest heels in DMV sports history is calling it a career. Massive news in college basketball on Wednesday. Duke head coach Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K, announcing that the 2021-2022 season will be his final year of coaching. And his successor was named in the same press release, John Shire. Uh, Shire played for Duke 2006 to 2010. He was a captain on that 2009-2010 Duke National Championship team. He has spent eight years on Krzyzewski's staff, was promoted to associate head coach in 2018. So, so much for any drama or intrigue regarding who's going to replace Coach K. But for me, as a lifelong DMV area resident, as someone who went to the University of Maryland, 1997 to 2001, Mike Krzyzewski is one of the greatest heels of my sports life. Maryland Duke clearly doesn't mean what it used to mean and really will never mean what it used to mean again with the two teams in different conferences. But when Maryland Duke was at its peak, when Maryland Duke was on fire, you know, like 2001 to 2005, that was something special. And Gary Williams versus Mike Krzyzewski was a heavyweight matchup. In fact, just thinking about it, Krzyzewski may be my number one all-time sports heel. Like Emmett Smith is up there. Bill Parcells is up there. Sidney Crosby is up there. Mike Krzyzewski may top all of those guys for me. My holy axis of sports hate is comprised of three teams. The Dallas Cowboys, the New York Yankees, and the Duke Blue Devils. And of course, nobody says Duke more than Mike Krzyzewski. The face, the voice, the hair, and yes, a big reason for the sports hate of Krzyzewski is how well he's done. There's no getting around that. Mike Krzyzewski has won more Division I men's college basketball games than any coach in history. In 41 seasons as Duke head coach, he has led Duke to five national championships and 12 Final Fours. I mean, think about that. Five national titles and 12 Final Fours. That's an incredible run, and I can't stand him. Who's your number one all-time sports heel? Let me know. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Because sports aren't just about who you root for. Sports are also about who you root against. Sports aren't just about who you like. Sports are about who you despise from a sports standpoint. And Mike Krzyzewski has been one of the biggest sports heels for me, and I know for a lot of you, for a very long time. And he's going bye-bye at the end of Duke's next college basketball season. Oh yeah, before we go in-depth on the end of the Wizards season, I must tell you something, and I must thank you for that something. This podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, has done it. We moved past the Adam Schefter podcast in the Apple podcast rankings in the U.S. football category. I brought up the possibility of this on last Friday's installment of the podcast. We did it. Mission accomplished. Happy Thanksgiving. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you. Last check of the rankings, this podcast, number 28 in the country. 
Schefter's Pod number 37. So if nothing else ever happens with this podcast, we can say that we beat Schefter. I will take that. I got nothing against Schefter. I just find this funny. This humble podcast done in a makeshift studio for which pillows and blankets serve as soundproofing. Top 30 in the country and ahead of Adam Schefter's podcast. So thank you for your support. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Give the podcast a five-star rating. Write like a one-sentence review of the podcast. None of this costs you anything, but it all helps out a lot. Your continued support is very much appreciated. All right, the Wizards. What now? We may never see another Wizards season like the one that just ended on Wednesday night. The Wizards 2020-2021 season ends up being one of the most bizarre seasons any team in D.C. area sports has ever had for all of the reasons that we've covered on this podcast over the last few months. It was as Jekyll and Hyde of a team as I can ever remember the Wizards having. And now we move on to what I think is one of the biggest off-seasons in Wizards history. So first, the game on Wednesday night. A very disappointing game. A 129-112 loss at the Philadelphia 76ers. Wizards lose their first round NBA playoff series against Philly four games to one. Uh, this was really a shame. The Sixers, it turned out, were without their best player in Joel Embiid. He ended up being ruled out of the game due to what ended up being a small lateral meniscus tear in his right knee that was suffered in the first quarter of game four. We weren't sure about the specifics of the injury when we last spoke on this podcast. Well, we found out on Wednesday afternoon when the 76ers announced that Embiid had suffered again a small lateral meniscus tear in his right knee. That's not a nothing injury. Now, we don't know what Embiid's status will be in these NBA playoffs moving forward, but that's not a nothing injury, a small lateral meniscus tear in the right knee. No Embiid on Wednesday night, and yet the Wizards were unable to come through, and the game ended up being non-competitive. Wizards in Game 5 got smashed in the second half, only trailed at the half by 2 points, 65-63, but the Wizards lost the second half by 15 points, 64-49, and even that doesn't tell an accurate story regarding what went down in the second half. The Wizards in Game 5 on Wednesday night got owned inside, despite Joel Embiid not playing. The Wizards finished the game with just 38 points in the paint to the 76ers 52. The Wizards did hold the 76ers to 9 of 27 on threes, but allowed the Sixers to go 34 of 57 on twos. When it came to will, when it came to desire, when it came to fight, the 76ers outwilled, outdesired, outfought the Wizards in this game on Wednesday night. Again, very disappointing. The Wizards had no answer for Ben Simmons. He went 7 of 11 from the field, all twos, of course, because he can't make a three to save his life. He went 5 of 8 on free throws, which for him is a win, and he finished with a triple-double. 19 points, 11 assists versus 4 turnovers, and 10 rebounds to go with 2 blocks in exactly 39 minutes as a starter, and he had a game-best plus-minus rating of plus 17. You know, I mentioned, like, the lack of will that was on display at times in the game. And look, I'm not a mind reader, okay? I don't know who's trying and who isn't. You know, it's so hard to differentiate between lack of effort and just lack of execution. But something like this really jumped out to me. Rui Hachimura had zero rebounds in 22 minutes, 20 seconds of playing time in the second half on Wednesday night. Now, I like Hachimura, okay? But how does that happen? Zero rebounds in 22 minutes, 20 seconds of playing time 
in the second half. And Hachimura ended up coming on as the series went on. He shot the three well in the series. Even in game five on Wednesday night, Hachimura finished with 21 points on eight of 13 shooting, six rebounds, all of them in the first half and two assists versus no turnovers in 42 minutes, 39 seconds as a starter. But I, I just, I see something like that. Hachimura, zero boards in 22 plus minutes of playing time over the third and fourth quarters. And that just to me went right in line with the Wizards getting thrashed inside again, despite Joel Embiid not playing in the game. This was a physical game. This was a slow plotting game. A lot of trips to the free throw line. Wizards and 76ers combined for 55 fouls. Uh, Wizards did go 26 of 33 on free throws. 76ers went 34 of 43 on free throws. Yes, 43 free throw attempts for the Sixers in game five. So much for defending without fouling. Although again, a lot of fouls were called in this game. And then there was Bradley Beal. So Bradley Beal, to me, did not deliver nearly enough in game five. Game five was a game that screamed for Bradley Beal to be great. Again, no Joel Embiid. You very much could argue that Beal was the most gifted player available in Game 5. Like, if you're ranking all of the players who played in Game 5, Bradley Beal, you can make a very strong case, is number one. You had the Wizards facing elimination. This was a prime opportunity for Beal to dominate as the franchise player he is purported to be. And to Beal's credit, he had a terrific first half. Beal in the first half, one of two on threes, five of nine on twos, eight of eight on free throws. He scored 21 points in 19 minutes, 54 seconds as a starter in the first half. But Beal in a second half in which the Wizards got outscored by 15 points, went just one of five on threes, just three of seven on twos, and scored just 11 points. That's not dominating. That's not asserting yourself as a true franchise player. Beal finished the game with seven rebounds and five assists, but he also had five turnovers. And this game, to me, in a lot of ways, captured the series that Beal had. It's not like Beal had a terrible series, but he didn't have a great series. And Philadelphia is a very good defensive team. Philadelphia brought it to Bradley Beal. Beal had to earn basically everything he got in this series. All of that's true. But if you're Bradley Beal and you truly are an elite player, an MVP caliber player, an all-NBA first-team caliber player, you do better than what Bradley Beal ended up doing in this series. He has another level that he needs to get to if he's truly going to be an elite player, a franchise player, an all-NBA first-team caliber player. And to Beal's credit, after the game, he did talk about this, how there's another step that he needs to take as a player. So good for him. I like Bradley Beal a lot as a wizard. But that just really stood out to me with Game 5. This was a chance for Beal to establish himself further as a true superstar in the NBA. And unfortunately, He did not do that. Now, what about the other guy in terms of the Wizards dynamic duo, Russell Westbrook? Well, Westbrook in game five did a lot of Westbrook-like stuff. He wasn't great, but he also wasn't bad. He was not the Wizards' biggest problem, that's for sure. You know, Russell Westbrook is who he is. He's not changing at this point. I think way too often he is a defensive liability. He, of course, can be highly inefficient, but he, of course, plays with a tenacity and a ferocity that is to forever be admired, and he can help you in so many ways. Westbrook in game five, two of five on threes, you like that, but just five of 15 on twos, you don't like that. Westbrook in game five, 24 points, 10 assists versus four turnovers, eight rebounds. Okay. I mean, Westbrook has done better in terms of assists and boards, but those are certainly not bad totals. But also for Westbrook in game five, worst plus minus rating in the game at minus 21. You don't like that. So you get the idea. It was kind of a 
typical Westbrook game where, you know, this is good, but that wasn't so good. Wizards, of course, ended up losing, got thrashed in the second half. But what sticks with me regarding Westbrook with game five is what Westbrook said after the game. Westbrook on whether the Wizards should retain Scott Brooks as head coach. As yes, Wednesday night's game may have been the final game for Scott Brooks as Wizards head coach. This season is the final season of Brooks's reported five-year, $35 million contract. Yes, Scott Brooks makes $7 million per year. That's really amazing when you think about that. Anyway, Westbrook after the game, quote, that's not my decision, but me personally, I don't see why Scotty should go anywhere. This year, he did a hell of a job. He did a job that I'm pretty sure people didn't think he was able to do. He don't get a lot of credit for it. He deserves a lot of credit for it, end quote. Beal also was complimentary of Brooks after the game, although Beal wasn't nearly as forceful as Westbrook was. And you got the sense kind of listening between the lines with what Beal said of Beal likes Brooks, but Beal doesn't love Brooks. Westbrook legitimately loves Brooks and Brooks loves Westbrook. That's one of the reasons why the Wizards traded for Westbrook was kind of a last gasp effort by Brooks to save his job, trade away John Wall, bring in Russell Westbrook, and it may have paid off. We'll see. Westbrook may have done enough to get Scott Brooks a second contract as Wizards head coach. Now, would I give Scott Brooks a second contract as Wizards head coach? Well, that depends on the direction that the Wizards end up going in. So first of all, we may find out about that direction as soon as Thursday morning. Chase Hughes, Wizards insider of NBC Sports Washington, tweeted late on Wednesday night that the Wizards general manager, Tommy Shepard, will be addressing the media on Thursday morning with Scott Brooks right after. All of this set to start at 10.30 in the morning. So we may find out on Thursday Scott Brooks' future as head coach. But to me, Scott Brooks' future as Wizards head coach is tied to what the Wizards do in terms of where they are as a franchise. So let's take a step back for a moment. Ultimately, this five-game first-round series loss to the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA playoffs is confirmation of what I think we already knew about the Wizards. They are an, at best, number four to number six seed in the Eastern Conference, okay? Like, yes, there were injury reasons for why the Wizards were only the number eight seed in the East in the 2021 NBA playoffs, namely Russell Westbrook having dealt with a torn left quadriceps early in the season. But even accounting for that and some of the other injuries like those to Thomas Bryant and Denny Abdia, you did not have a Wizards team that realistically could compete for a top three seed in the Eastern Conference this season. And understand, in the NBA, if you're not a top three seed in your conference, you basically have no shot at an NBA title. And that's what we're in this for, right? An NBA title. It's not about making the NBA playoffs. It's about winning the NBA championship. Through the 2019-2020 season, only two non-top three seeds have ever won NBA titles. Those teams, the number four seeded Boston Celtics in the 1968-69 season, and the number six seeded Houston Rockets in the 1994-95 season. That's it. Every other NBA champion has been a top three seed in that team's conference. So if you're not in a realistic position to be a top three seed in your conference, then you're not in a realistic position to win an NBA title. And if you're not in a realistic position to win an NBA title, then you need to get into that position. And the Wizards 2021 offseason, to me, needs to be all about getting into that position. 
the biggest thing that the Wizards need to determine is whether they're going to move forward with Bradley Beal. And a lot of this is on him. Now, Beal got asked about his future after the Game 5 loss on Wednesday night and, you know, basically danced around the issue. Beal has been pretty open to wanting to stay here, but Beal also has made it pretty clear he wants to see reasons to want to stay here. And I don't blame him for having that position. But contractually speaking, this is a really big offseason. Next season is set to be Beal's age 28 season and the final season before he can opt out of his contract. Bradley Beal has a $37.262 million player option for the 2022-2023 season. The Wizards in October 2019 convinced Beal to sign a two-year max contract extension worth about $72 million. The extension has yet to kick in. The extension will kick in beginning with next season, the 2021-2022 season. But the second season of the extension, 2022-2023, is a player option season. The Wizards need to figure out if Beal is in or out and whether they are in or out with him. Now, I'm assuming the Wizards want to be in on Bradley Beal. If Beal and the Wizards are committed to each other, or at least reasonably committed to each other, because I don't expect Beal this offseason to say, I'm all in no matter what you do. Like, Beal may well be, yeah, I want to see more, but yeah, I'm on board with you guys as long as you do as you need to do to become NBA championship caliber. Then to me, the Wizards need to go all in this offseason to acquire a major piece or pieces to elevate the team beyond being an at best number four to number six seed in the Eastern Conference. Again, you've got to get up to that level of at least being a three seed in the East. The Wizards are not there right now. Now, what is that major piece to acquire? I don't know. It's not obvious here. And it's not as simple as, okay, get that guy. Okay, go get him. Like, no, NBA trades are highly complicated. Of course, NBA superstars have got to want to come to you in order for you to get them. It's not as simple as go get a third major piece, but you've got to do all you can to get a third major piece this offseason, if in fact you're going to continue along this path of B.O. Westbrook and let's see what goes down. And if you're going to do that, then I actually think there is an argument to bring back Scott Brooks because Westbrook loves Brooks and Brooks gets the most out of Westbrook. And while I don't know that Beal loves Brooks, I think Beal can certainly live with Brooks. And Beal has certainly thrived with Brooks from a standpoint of blossoming as a scorer over these last two seasons. Look, there's a lot about Scott Brooks I don't like. He has not done a good job with this team in terms of getting it to consistently play good defense. The Wizards, by and large, have been an awful defensive team for decades, okay? I mean, this goes back years. But with Scott Brooks, you've had some embarrassing defensive teams over the last few seasons. However, however, Scott Brooks has done a good job with this team offensively. And with the defense, we did see the defense improve as this past regular season went on. I do think there's maybe a world in which the Wizards, with Scott Brooks as their head coach, are decent defensively, although I don't have a lot of faith in that happening. But we did see, again, defensive improvement as this past regular season went on. But if you're sticking with Westbrook and Beal and you're doubling down on Westbrook and Beal and you're going all in to acquire a major piece or pieces this offseason, I think there is a case to be made for keeping Scott Brooks because, again, you can maximize Russell Westbrook that way. But if Beal isn't committed to the Wizards, or if the Wizards feel like adding another major piece or pieces is not realistic this offseason, then the Wizards need to go in the opposite direction with Beal and trade him. Okay? 
because his value is only going to diminish as he approaches being able to exercise that player option in the 2022 offseason. It's as simple as that. You either double down on Beal Westbrook or you trade Bradley Beal. And that's the two option decision that the Wizards need to address this offseason. That to me is what this offseason should be about. The worst thing that the Wizards could do this offseason is basically say, all right, we're going to run it back next season and we're going to stick with Beal and Westbrook, but we're not going to do anything too major. And you know what? We think if our team just stays healthy, golly gee, we can really be a good team in the 2021-2022 season. No, you can't. Not good enough to win an NBA championship. Again, you can be good enough to maybe be a number four seed, but that's not getting you anywhere. Where the Wizards are right now as a franchise is a road to nowhere. I want the Wizards to be on a road to somewhere. Doubling down on Beal Westbrook by adding another major piece or pieces, or conversely, trading away Bradley Beal puts you on a road to somewhere, at least in theory. Now, trading Bradley Beal would not necessarily signal the start of a full-fledged teardown and rebuild. If Beal brought back a horde of draft picks and promising young talent, then the Wizards, if they're smart with those assets, could maybe be good sooner rather than later. I mean, the Wizards do have a good number of promising young players under team control for years to come. I mean, you look at what's on this roster right now. Rui Hachimura, Daniel Gafford, Denny Avdia, Chandler Hutchison, Thomas Bryant, even Davies Bertans, okay? I mean, I don't like where we're at with Bertans right now, but I don't know that he's as bad as we saw this past season. You got some pieces to work with here on the Wizards. So if you traded away Beal and you were able to turn those assets you got back to Beal into real pieces sooner rather than later, it's not like the Wizards would be mired in 20-win territory for the next five years. At least it wouldn't have to be that way but at least you'd be on a path to something. What you can't have is, again, this run it back next season approach. And you can't risk Bradley Beal leaving you for nothing next offseason. I mean, think about that. Him opting out and you getting nothing back for him or you getting a minimal return back for him, you got to maximize the asset. You got to either do something with this team this offseason to make it NBA championship caliber, or you got to trade Beal now or this offseason anyway, while he still has real value, and get back as much as you realistically can for the guy. That's the decision that the Wizards face this offseason. That's what leads to everything else for the Wizards this offseason. We shall see. It's going to take some chops. It's going to take some gumption. But this is the thinking that I want the Wizards to be having as the offseason begins. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. We'll see what news, if any, there is on Thursday regarding Scott Brooks. That may be the tell regarding what the Wizards approaches moving forward. All right, guys, if you love listening to me on the Al Galdi podcast, what's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show? And there's no better place to host than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of all that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for just $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. 
So if you're ready to do more than just listening to me talk about D.C. area sports, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box in this episode to find out more. That's bwhustle.com slash join. All right, so we on Wednesday had a Washington football team OTA practice that was open to the media. A bunch of guys spoke via Zoom press conference after the practice, including Ron Rivera, Jack Del Rio, Taylor Heineke, and Brandon Sheriff. I said Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Sheriff. Yes, Commissioner Roger Goodell. Thank you. And so let us begin unpacking the most noteworthy items. So in terms of attendance, this was another well-attended Washington OTA practice this offseason, but those not there for the, remember, voluntary practice did again include Chase Young, also included Jonathan Allen. Montez Sweat and Charles Leno Jr. were there off not being there last week. Young continued to be absent, and Allen was absent. This is the second of just two weeks of OTA practices for Washington this offseason. Chase Young has not been in attendance yet. I gave you my stance on this at length on Tuesday's installment of the podcast, episode 74. To summarize, I'm not angry. I'm not upset. I don't think that him no-showing will impact his performance in the 2021 season. I do, though, think that it would be nice if he was there. I do wonder why he isn't there. I'd be interested to know what has compelled him not to be there. Jack Del Rio on Wednesday on the absence of Chase Young. I spoke with him last night. Uh, he'll, he'll be joining us shortly. And, um, you know, he's working out, taking care of business. And so, uh, you know, all our guys, it's voluntary. We've had tremendous participation. We're, we're, we're pleased with that. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do. And, uh, and so I think all our guys understand that. Yes, and Chase Young has been training. There was a video on social media of him sprinting like a madman. That made the rounds this week. What about Jonathan Allen? A bit surprising that he wasn't in attendance on Wednesday. He was in attendance last week. Of course, there may be something going on in his life that led him to not be in attendance. Ron Rivera on Wednesday on the absence of Jonathan Allen. It's a voluntary situation, you know, and again, these are all voluntary. We appreciate the guys coming. You know, he's been in contact with his, his, his position coach. So, uh, you know, at least we know, uh, and, and that's important. And I really do appreciate the guys being here. Yes, there's that word again, voluntary. I do wonder if at some point the NFL Players Association concedes the voluntary nature of OTAs in exchange for something, you know, larger roster sizes, automatic roster bonuses, something. I'm not even sure if the owners would want to do something like that because I'm not sure that the owners really care about these OTA practices. I mean, it's not like the NFL is really making money off these OTA practices, but this whole thing of the practices being voluntary, and yet attendance is inevitably taken and noted, and guys who don't show up get called out for not showing up. It just seems like a bad position that the NFLPA has put his players in with these practices being voluntary. Like, remove the ambiguity, make them all mandatory, but get something back in return for the players agreeing to show up to all these OTA practices each offseason. Anyway, there were some injury situations that came up on Wednesday. Taylor Heineke, Curtis Samuel, and Sadiq Charles were all in attendance on Wednesday, but all were off to the side. Ron shed some light on what's going on with each guy. Yeah, with Sadiq, we're still monitoring him. You know, he's, he's coming off that uh, that season-ending surgery he had, so we're still monitoring him. He, he practiced a day or two in a row, and then we'll give him a day off. Um, there's no issue there. Uh, Curtis is dealing with a little twinge he has um, on his groin, so we're just trying to be smart with him and, and, and keep an eye on him as well. That shouldn't be an issue. Um, um, 
Who was the other one? I'm sorry. I'm losing my mind. Um, oh, Taylor. Taylor caught an elbow um, on, on, on uh, just above the eye um, um, during a, uh, an installation period. When we were walking through and the back overemphasized the, the pocket in which to put it in, he put the elbow up a little bit high, and Taylor leaned in with his head, and he, and he nicked him just above it. And uh, unfortunately – he got uh, he got a little gash and and had to get stitches. So he he's, he looks like a boxer right now. Um, so until we can put a helmet on him safely, uh, or, you know we won't have him out there. You know he's out there wearing a ball cap. He's he's involved in everything. It's just unfortunate. It's just one of those accident things. And it was one of those toned down walk through periods. And and the back, like I said, was just overemphasizing the pocket in which the quarterback to stick the ball in. And like I said, Taylor leaned in and. He caught the elbow, so yeah, that was a little unfortunate. Uh, yes, it was. More on Taylor Heineke coming up in moments. But with Sadiq Charles, so it turns out he is still being brought along at least somewhat slowly here. Washington took Charles with the first of its two fourth-round picks in the 2020 NFL Draft, took him out of LSU. Charles, in his 2020 rookie season, played in one game with one start. He was inactive for each of Washington's first five games of the 2020 season. He then started at left guard for that Washington 2019 loss at the New York Giants in week six, but Charles in that game suffering a reported dislocated kneecap on the second offensive snap of the game, and that was it. He was done for the season. Washington put him on the reserve slash injured list last October 24th. He is talented, but the health has been a concern so far in his NFL career. Curtis Samuel, as Ron said, dealing with a groin, and then how about what Ron revealed about Taylor Heineke. The legend of Taylor Heineke on Wednesday grew even more. Dude caught an elbow above his left eye during an installation period. He, during his Zoom press conference on Wednesday, was bandaged up. He looked like a UFC fighter, post-fight. Classic Heineke. In fact, here was Heineke on what happened to him. Yeah, so last week, we have a install period, and coach, you know, it's, it's hot outside. Coach says, take your helmets off. So we're going half speed through this play, and, you know, I do a play action, and one of the running back's elbows caught me right above the eye, uh, caught me pretty good. Um, nice little gash, got seven stitches, a little chip tooth. So, um, you know, football season started pretty early for me. Indeed it did, but like I said, the legend of Heineke now even larger. All right, let's talk some Taylor Heineke. I am open to Taylor Heineke, more so than I think most people are. I want an open, honest, good-faith quarterback competition at training camp, Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke versus Kyle Allen. May the best man win. One of the things about this Washington football team offseason that has cracked me up is how Heineke has become like a forgotten man. The guy authored one of the most heroic playoff performances in the history of the franchise this past January in that loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field on Wild Card Weekend. And I don't use that word heroic lightly. That performance was heroic. But his name, like, barely comes up now. Give Taylor Heineke a chance. That's all I'm saying. Now, Heineke had been said to be a restricted free agent this offseason. The Washington football team, all the way back on February 10th, announced the re-signing of Heineke to a two-year contract, albeit one with very little guaranteed money. The details of the Heineke contract are telling. Two-year, $4.75 million deal with just $1.5 million fully guaranteed at signing base salaries of just a million dollars in 2021 and 1.5 million dollars in 2022. He is very cuttable. There's no doubt about that, but he did get a two-year contract when he didn't have to be given a two-year contract. Heineke on Wednesday on what it's like to have at least some stability now in his career. Yeah, um, 
like I said before in, in some some previous you know interviews, um, this is the first year where I feel like I kind of have kind of have two feet in the door, um, so to speak. Um, the last five years, I feel like I've had one foot in the door and just been clawing my way to try to make the team. Um, having a you know a two year contract is uh, you know I feel a little sense of security, um, but that doesn't change the way I approach the game or approach practice. You know, go out there and try and get better every day, and, um, and we'll see what happens. I tell you, the rise of Taylor Heineke with the Washington football team last season really was something else. Washington, on December 8th, signed Heineke to its practice squad. He only joined the team on December 8th. Washington, on December 19th, signed Heineke from the practice squad to the active roster. Heineke was Washington's QB3 for that 2015 loss to the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field in Week 15, but was Washington's QB2 for that 2013 loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field in Week 16. And so it was Heineke who relieved Dwayne Haskins in his debacle of a final game for Washington. Heineke played pretty well, all things considered. And then Heineke started the playoff game and was outstanding. 31-23 loss to the eventual Super Bowl champion Bucks at FedEx Field on, remember, Super Wild Card Weekend. He, in the game, made just his second career NFL start, his first NFL start since December 23rd, 2018. He went 26 of 44 for 306 yards, a touchdown and an interception. He took just two sacks. He had six carries for 46 yards and an unforgettable touchdown. He led a Washington offense that went seven for 14 on third downs. Heineke earned an overall grade for the game for Pro Football Focus of 92.0. That is the highest single game grade for a Washington quarterback in nearly 14 years. And Heineke did what he did despite facing a Todd Bowles coordinated Bucks defense that finished the 2020 regular season fifth in the NFL in pass defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Heineke did what he did despite suffering an AC joint separation in his left shoulder on that spectacular touchdown run, the third quarter, third and five, eight-yard shotgun scramble touchdown run with the dive toward the front left corner pylon. Heineke did what he did despite Washington pass catchers being guilty of five drops, running back J.D. McKissick having two major fails in pass protection, the officials being guilty of a brutal no-call in the first half, and Washington's running game struggling big time. Like, again, the performance was heroic. And I'm not saying you hand Taylor Heineke anything for this upcoming season, but he should be viewed as at least somewhat of a factor in the quarterback situation. Now, among the things working against Heineke moving forward is his injury history. Heineke does have a significant injury history. 2017, he made his NFL debut in a week 16 relief outing for the Houston Texans, suffered a concussion. 2018, he made his first NFL regular season start in week 16, suffered a season-ending left elbow injury. The aforementioned playoff loss to the Bucks this past January. Heineke, the great touchdown run, but on that run, suffering an AC joint separation in his left shoulder. And so Heineke this offseason has bulked up. Yes, he's gotten jacked. He talked about this quite a bit on Wednesday. He does look bigger. You know, dude has put on some mass. Do you even lift, bro? What's up, bro? Do you even lift? Do you even lift, bro? Yes, exactly. Do you even lift, bro? Heineke lifts. Here he was on Wednesday. I'm getting jacked. Yeah, I feel like I, I did a, a pretty good job this offseason. I gained about 15 pounds of, of, of good weight, um, you know, eating super healthy um, and just hitting the gym a lot. Um, I just felt like, you know, every time I got in that field, for some reason, something happened. So, um, you know, that was the biggest 
uh, point of concern this offseason. I felt like um, I kind of checked that box off. Yeah, so hopefully putting on some mass helps Taylor Heineke stay healthy if, in fact, he's called upon to play this upcoming season. Of course, it may just be that his body is such that it's prone to injury. You know, some people's bones are brittle and tendons are brittle and physiology is such that those players are prone to injury. And maybe Taylor Heineke is one of those guys, but I give him credit for at least trying to combat his significant injury history by putting on some mass this offseason. Now, there was another quarterback who came up on Wednesday, Steven Montez. When we talk Washington quarterbacks, we talk about the big three, right? Fitzpatrick, Heineke, and Allen. But of course, Washington does have a fourth quarterback on the roster in Steven Montez. And very interestingly, Montez on Wednesday participated in some non-quarterback drills, which actually isn't surprising. So Washington signed Montez as an undrafted free agent out of Colorado in April 2020. He was the Buffs starting quarterback for three seasons, 2017 through 2019. Washington football team insider Ben Standing of The Athletic DC this past March reported that Washington was interested in potentially using Montez similar to how the New Orleans Saints have used quarterback Taysom Hill. Very interesting, right? Taysom Hill, of course, has been used by the Saints in creative formations as a passer, a pass catcher and a ball carrier. So the idea with Steven Montez potentially is for, wait for it, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, exactly. Road standing, quote, what the coaches know is Montez is an impressive athlete with good physical traits. There's a world where, over time, the quarterback who finished his college career with 63 touchdown passes and 9,710 passing yards pushes for a spot solely on his throwing skills. When last season wrapped, The coaching staff informed Montez the quickest path to contributing likely comes in the utility role popularized in recent years by the Saints with Hill, end quote. Understand this about Steven Montez. He is an athlete. He at the 2020 NFL Scouting Combine measured as being 6'4", but ran a 4.68 second 40-yard dash. So he's got some speed to him. He's got some athleticism to him. Ron Rivera on Wednesday on having Steven Montez participate in some non-quarterback drills. Well, the thing that we got to look at is, is you know, going forward is, is, again, with this whole COVID situation, we're not out of COVID. That's the thing everybody's got to understand. And, and that's why we're hoping for guys to get vaccinated because, you know, Steven does have his vaccination. Steven did have COVID a year ago. So you coupled that with the vaccination. And, and I guess, you know, as, as, as the science says, you know, he's, he's super protected. So he's a guy that could help us in, in more positions than one if something were to happen. Um, and, and if you get a contact tracing on, on some players at a specific position, um, and Steven knows what to do, um, you know, and, and if he's not active initially, he could be active. So that's kind of the thought process behind Steven. And he's not the only guy that we're looking at as far as the position flex is concerned. We've got a few other guys that we've said, Hey, you know, this guy makes the 53. Um, he may not be active this week, but he may have a chance if something crazy were to. I mean, you've got to prepare for those 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 circumstances because again, we are not out of COVID, and and and, and that's why I, I believe you know we're stressing that if we can get to eighty five percent, we can get that herd immunity, um, we can let our guards down a little bit, but we're not letting them down right now. So we're preparing for situations where you know we go into the season and, and we may have to, and so we're looking at a lot of these things, a lot of these possibilities. Um, and it may play into the factor of, of why you keep guys and you can't keep other guys. You, you, I hate to say it, but that's, that's a real concern. 
Interesting to hear the extent to which Ron still is concerned about COVID-19, and that's good. That's his job. He is the head coach in the coach-centric approach. He is Don Ron. It's his job to worry about everything and have contingency plans. Hopefully, we are out of the COVID-19 pandemic come the 2021 NFL season. We very clearly are coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but who the heck knows? You know, who knows what kind of bizarro turn this whole situation could end up taking. But also standing out to me from Ron in that cut that I just played for you is him saying that Steven Montez had COVID-19 last year. That's notable for the following reason. As you may recall, it was known last season that one of Washington's quarterbacks had had COVID-19. Ron actually at one point said that one of the quarterbacks on the team had COVID-19 antibodies. We didn't know which quarterback that was. Now, apparently, we do know. Also from Ron Rivera at his post-OTA practice Zoom press conference on Wednesday was some good stuff on Antonio Gibson. So think about this regarding Antonio Gibson. Washington took him in the third round of the 2020 NFL Draft out of Memphis, for which he was a combo running back receiver. Again, position flex. Position flex. Yes. In fact, Ron at his and then Vice President of Player Personnel Kyle Smith's virtual press conference on the night on which Washington drafted Gibson, so this is April 24th, 2020, did not shy away from comparing Antonio Gibson to Christian McCaffrey. And while Gibson didn't do that much as a pass catcher in his rookie 2020 season, Gibson last regular season, just 36 receptions for 247 yards on 44 targets. Gibson in his 2020 rookie season did do plenty as a ball carrier. Gibson in the 2020 regular season rushed for 795 yards and 11 touchdowns on 4.68 yards per carry. Gibson finished the 2020 regular season number six out of 47 qualified running backs, those each with at least 100 rush attempts in rushing DVOA for football outsiders. Ron on Wednesday on Gibson. Well, you know, First of all, he's a football player, and 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 I think you know the adjustment for him is is really just learning the the, the basic dynamics of of his position, understanding you know what his aiming points are once he gets the ball in his hand for certain runs, uh, what he's looking for for certain runs, when to make that cut or when to press the hole, um, you know when, when when to anticipate the hole opening up. Those are all little things that he'll learn with the more reps he gets, and and that's probably the biggest thing. Um, the expectations is for him to take another big step. Uh, you know, he took a tremendous step last year, uh, was a, was a scoring machine for us in terms of, uh, you know, when we got close to, to the red zone, you know, he was able to put the ball in the end zone for us. Um, so I do anticipate him taking another big step. So there you go. Ron expecting Antonio Gibson to take another big step in 2021. I think we're all expecting Antonio Gibson to take another big step in 2021. Gibson at the 2020 NFL scouting combine ran a 43940. Curtis Samuel at his 2017 NFL scouting combine ran a 4-3-1-40. The need for speed is being met over these last two off seasons. Washington and March signed Samuel to a three-year $34.5 million deal with $21.5 million fully guaranteed at signing. Major free agent acquisition and a guy who very much brings position flex. Position flex. Yes, position flex. Samuel in the 2020 regular season, over 659 offensive snaps for the Carolina Panthers, lined up everywhere per roto wire. He was in the slot 67.5% of the time. He lined up tight 12% of the time. 
He lined up in the backfield 11.6% of the time. He lined up on the outside 9% of the time. Ron on Wednesday on what Samuel's versatility means for opposing defenses. Well, the first thing you got to do is, like you said, you got to know what personnel grouping the offense is in and and where he's lined up. Um, You know, if he's an outside player, if he's playing the X or the Z, you say, okay, we can account for him here. Now all of a sudden he's in the slot. Now it's a whole other thing because – you know, do you like the matchup? You know, is the nickel capable of cover more? If he's in the slot, is that a linebacker over him? Um, now he motions across the formation. Now we got to be ready for the jet sweep or we got to be ready for some sort of pulling trap, uh, something up inside because Curtis has the ability to run inside as well. So there's a lot of variables that come into trying to, to scout, prepare for, 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 for multi positional players, uh, like a Curtis Samuels. Or Curtis Samuel, him too. Is there any danger to moving a guy like Samuel around too much? I don't think there's any danger moving him around too much. The thing that I really do appreciate when you watch a guy uh, like that and then you get an opportunity to break down his stats and you see that, you know, on the field, his production is off the charts. When the ball in his hands, his production is is, is, is tremendous. So um, the thing we got to do is make sure we have him on the field. And then we got to make sure he's got an opportunity to touch the ball because it you know, the analytics show that this is a guy that you've got to have be a big part of your offense. And how about Ron right there referencing the analytics? I love it. Uh, Also, keep in mind that Samuel can carry the football. Samuel, over his four seasons with the Panthers, 2017 through 2020, 72 carries for 478 yards. That's 6.64 yards per carry and five touchdowns. Remember, Samuel was a running back at Ohio State. I'm very excited to see what Curtis Samuel brings to the Washington football team offense. You think about him, you think about Antonio Gibson, a year older, a year wiser, a year better. Terry McLaurin going into year three, the addition of someone like Deyami Brown via the draft. Cam Sims is back with you. He seemed to bust out as last season went on, was exceptional in that playoff loss to the Buccaneers. There's a lot to be excited about with the Washington offense when it comes to some of the skill position players. I mean, mention people like, you know, Logan Thomas and J.D. McKissick, Adam Humphreys, another free agent acquisition at receiver. Uh, let's talk offensive line. So gone are Morgan Moses and Jaron Christian. In are Charles Leno Jr., Samuel Cosme, and Eric Flowers. And still with the team are Brandon Sheriff, Chase Roulier, Cornelius Lucas, Wes Schweitzer, Sadiq Charles. There are plenty of others in the mix as well. Ron on Wednesday on the changes for the offensive line this offseason. Well, I, I think one of the things that we looked at as far as the offensive line was concerned was was how can we get better? How can we get better going forward as far as the future is concerned for a period of time? Um, you know, and, and one of the things that we talked about too was working to improve the depth. Uh, that is another thing that we really looked at. We feel that we've done that. We've got some good young players that, that, that are going to be guys that eventually will transition to, 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 to bigger roles for us. But right now, uh, we're really pleased with the position flex that we have from a lot of our, our young players. Um, I think wanting to remake it and, and, and create a uh, competitive atmosphere is a big part of what we did. Yeah, you heard the phrase that pays, position flex. So you follow the actions, and it's clear that Washington made developing more depth for the offensive line a priority. And Ron just confirmed that in that cut that I just played for you. And that's great. You want to have depth along the offensive line. Now, I do think you lessened the depth by releasing Morgan Moses and also to a lesser extent releasing Jaron Christian. But I also think that there probably was more at play than just Morgan Moses' spot on the roster 
for why he was released. Something must have happened in some way. You know, either Morgan said something or requested something or demanded something or Ron felt that Morgan is not on board with the culture change. I just have a hard time believing that all of a sudden, Ron Rivera decided to release Morgan Moses off him having not missed a single game over the last six seasons, 2015 through 2020. And yes, there have been nits to pick with Morgan's game, but he's coming off a really nice 2020. He's someone who's not that old. He's not someone who's eaten up a ton of salary cap space. It's not like Washington is truly lacking in salary cap space. I just feel like there's still more to the Morgan Moses situation than we've been told. But no doubt, Washington still has cultivated a good bit of depth this offseason with some of the maneuvering here. Uh, a big part of the offensive line change, of course, is Samuel Cosby. Washington took him with its second round pick in the 2021 NFL draft. He was taken out of Texas. He is an athletic freak. To what extent was Washington releasing Morgan Moses an endorsement of Cosme? Well, I think what it, what it really shows is that we have a, a, a tremendous amount of confidence in, 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 in uh, a number of our players and, and, and guys that we like, um, not just Cosme. I think that's the thing we got to understand. You know, we, we want to, you know, say, okay, we drafted Cosme. We do want him on the field, but we'll put him on the field when we get him there. Uh, when he earns that opportunity, you know, um, Cornelius Lucas is a guy that we're taking a nice, hard, long look at. Uh, that's going to be a very competitive position going into training camp. And we're going to play the best guy, the guy that gives us the best chance to, 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 to win, just so everybody knows. I mean, Sidney Charles is having a really good camp. Um, and he's another guy that's going to be very, very competitive for us. So again, going forward, you know, th- there's nothing set in stone. I mean, there, there, th- a lot of these positions will be competitive. I mean, every position has an opportunity to have a, uh, different player start uh, for the most part. There's a couple that are pretty solid, though, and, and I'm not going to lie to you about that. Thank you. We appreciate that. I do love the extent to which the offensive line seems to have depth. I mean, you think about things. Multiple legit options at left tackle in Leno, Lucas, and Cosme. Multiple legit options at right tackle in Lucas and Cosme. Multiple legit options at left guard in Flowers, Schweitzer, and even Wes Martin. You have Sadiq Charles as a wild card. Could play guard, could play tackle. We'll see. There's a lot to play with here regarding the offensive line. Specific to Cosme. So his athleticism is well-documented. Kentley Platty is someone who I've had on the podcast. He's the NFL analytics director for Pro Football Network. He came up with something called the Relative Athletic Score, RAS. It grades a player's measurements in NFL scouting combine slash pro day metrics on a 0 to 10 scale compared to his peer group. Cosme, with what he did at the Texas Pro Day this past March, ranked Number two out of 1,119 offensive tackle prospects from 1987 through 2021. Number two. I mean, think about that. Cosme at the Texas Pro Day measured as being 6'5 and 7'8 and 314 pounds, ran a 48440, had a broad jump of 117 inches, and did 36 bench press reps of 225 pounds. Take a listen to this. Brandon Sheriff on Wednesday at his post-OTA practice Zoom press conference on his impressions of Samuel Cosme. Uh, he's fast. He's strong. Uh, I deadlifted last Thursday, and he just hopped in with me. And I said, holy shit, where'd you come from? So excuse my French, but I just said, geez, Louise, where'd you come from? He started laughing, but he's strong. Um, and then today, he's uh, he, he showed off his speed, too. So I, I told him I got to catch up to him. So that's my, that's my challenge to beat him every day because we got GPSs on. So I'm going to try to beat him every day. 
Yeah, so even Brandon Sheriff, who is mighty powerful himself, impressed with the power on display from Samuel Cosby. A G's Louise, in addition to a holy S that we got there from Brandon Sheriff. We roll along. We turn our attention now to Washington's defense off comments from Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio at their post-OTA practice Zoom press conferences on Wednesday. Washington, with the number 19 pick in the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft, of course, took Kentucky linebacker Jamin Davis, the first of many athletic freaks taken by Washington in the 2021 draft. He figures to be a staple at linebacker in the upcoming season. He has been practicing a good bit so far as the Mike linebacker. Ron, on Wednesday, on how Jamin is doing. Well, the first thing is, and, and you guys, uh, I think you guys know, we, we started him out at the Mike position, um, giving him an opportunity to see if he can handle the middle linebacker responsibilities. Uh, and he's taking that. He's calling the huddles right now. He's setting the fronts for us. He's helping with the checks. Uh, so he's learning that part. Every practice seems to be an improvement for him as far as, you know, that part of it. Um, his physical attributes, uh, his physical talents, um, is now it's honing him and getting him to understand, uh, how to read his keys, how to react on his keys, uh, how to react, uh, you know, to what our opponents are trying to do. You know, in practice, he's, he's reading our offensive line. He's looking at the blocking schemes and he's trying to fit his, his, his run gaps. Uh, in coverage, he's, he's trying to understand and get a good feel for, where his drops are in zone coverages, uh, how does he match his coverages and, and man coverages about his, his techniques and understanding which side are his leverage side. So he's done a nice job. You do see the improvement every day, and it's exciting to watch the growth. That, that, that's one thing that I'm, I'm very pleased with. Jamin Davis in his 2020 Redshirt Junior season for Kentucky ranked number four in the SEC and number 20 in the FBS in tackles per game at 10.2 and total tackles at 102. He, in that 2020 Redshirt Junior season for Kentucky, recorded a run defense grade for pro football focus of 87.5. That ranked number four among all qualified off-ball linebackers on Power 5 conference teams. Now, take a listen to what I'm about to play for you. Jack Del Rio on Wednesday on Jamin Davis playing the mic. This was great. Yeah, that's just where he started. Uh, well, We'll work them from there, you know, like coach can talk about as much as he'd like. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what we're doing with certain people. Uh, I, I think Jamin's a really good football player. Uh, he's, he's part, he's in the mix there, uh, to be a big contributor. And, um, you know, we think he's going to be a fine football player for us, but he's got a lot of work to do. And, uh, and that's kind of the theme of what I'm saying to you all today. I mean, it's, uh, because that's how I feel. We have, uh, a lot of work to do. And, uh, we're just getting started. You know, um, we've got one more week, uh, of, of, of mini camp and, uh, you know, we need to finish strong with, with this initial installation of, of all that we do. All right. So how about what Jack says very early in that cut, basically saying regarding Jamin Davis playing the mic, uh, yeah, okay. That's what he's doing. Uh, Rivera can say what he wants to say about that stuff. I ain't giving you nothing in terms of where Jamin Davis is playing. Yeah, that's just where he started. Uh, we'll, we'll work him from there. You know, like coach can talk about as much as he'd like. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what we're doing with certain people. <laughs> yeah. And th- there are multiple things about that portion of the cut that I love. First of all, the like exasperation in Jack's voice when he says, we'll work him from there. Yeah, that's just where he started. Uh, we'll, We'll work them from there. 
<laughs> I can't get enough of that. And how about the little shot, the little dig from old JDR at Don Ron when he says, you know, coach can say what he wants to say. I'm not interested in giving you stuff on where our guys are playing and what we're planning on doing. Coach can talk about as much as he'd like. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what we're doing with certain people. Yeah, that's a little jab there from Jack toward Ron. Jack Del Rio is hysterical to watch and listen to during his press conferences because he always has this ultra serious look on his face and he always looks like he's a millisecond away from just snapping and going off and going nuts on you. And I love that, by the way. That's how I want my defensive coordinator to be. Super intense, super focused, not wanting to give you anything in the way of a competitive advantage even in a post-OTA practice Zoom press conference in early June. Like, would it really be that big of a deal if Jack expounded a little bit on Jamin Davis playing the mic and maybe playing some other positions? But no, Jack's like, Ron can talk about that stuff. I'm not doing that. Coach can talk about as much as he'd like. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what we're doing with certain people. Exactly. I love it. Jack has no interest in giving you anything. Loose lips sink ships. Snitches wind up in ditches. That's what Jack is talking about. Well, what about Cameron Curl? So Jack Del Rio, as you may recall, in a conversation with Washington football team senior vice president of media and content, Julie Donaldson on May 5th said that Landon Collins will be staying at strong safety. Although Jack in that same conversation also said that Landon may well be doing a bunch of linebacker-like things this upcoming season. But where does this leave Cameron Curl off his terrific rookie season? Jack on Wednesday on Curl. Uh, he fits wherever we put him. He's done a great job of that. Uh, he played multiple positions last year and uh, really had a fine year. And so, you know, we expect him to continue to be who he is, you know, do his thing. Um, he's, he's, he's bright. Uh, he's a good football player and makes good football decisions out there on the field and, um, and he communicates well with his teammates. So, yeah, we just want our guys to come out and work, put in the work, develop, uh, you know, roles will be determined. There's time for all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, right now the focus is just understanding how we do things, what we do, where, where you're expected to be and, and get there and play fast. Washington took Curl in the seventh round of the 2020 NFL Draft out of Arkansas. Curl in the 2020 season started each of Washington's final 10 games, including the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field on Super Wild Card Weekend. Curl finished the 2020 regular season as Pro Football Focus's highest graded rookie safety, overall grade of 68.0. And Curl during the 2020 regular season for PFF played at least 150 snaps at each of three spots, box safety, free safety, and slot corner. Ah, yes, position flex. The Washington football team on May 17th signed Bobby McCain, who can play free safety at nickel corner. Washington last offseason signed Kendall Fuller, who can play outside corner, slot corner, and free safety. Jack on Wednesday on what it means to have position flex, multiple guys who can play multiple positions. Yeah, I mean, it allows some flexibility. You know, things happen throughout the course of the season. Uh, each every each and every year takes on its own life, and, and you know, you have to be able to adjust and adapt. And uh, guys that can play multiple spots and do multiple things, certainly, you know, skill set wise, you're able to take advantage of those skills, and, and so it allows you to do a few more things creatively, uh, schematically. So, um, but right now, like I said, it's 
it's, it's just we've just got so much work to do. And that's really the main point for us right now is put in the work. It's one day at a time. You don't start at the top. You start at the bottom, and it's a process, and it's you just have to go about your work and gain a, gain a greater understanding. If you think you had it down last year, get it down to a new level. You know, I, I, I was on the Denver staff with Peyton Manning, and I, I watched him in front row taking notes, meticulous notes, you know, in, in year 20. So it's like you never know it. You never have it all figured out. So, you know, we're encouraging our guys to get into the details, uh, the, the nuances, really understand. If you've been here and you're taking it to a new level, uh, do just that and uh, and apply yourself. Don't just kind of know where to line up, but know exactly how you can impact things for us. I love that nugget about Peyton Manning. Never stop trying to be better. And Jack knows Peyton. Jack was the Denver Broncos defensive coordinator from 2012 through 2014. The Broncos NFL rankings in total defense for Football Outsiders DVOA metric over Jack's three seasons as Broncos defensive coordinator, number five in 2012, number 15 in 2013, number four in 2014. Twice in three seasons, Jack had the Broncos top five in total defense per DVOA. And that's the thing with Jack Del Rio. He's had success basically everywhere he's been in terms of coaching up defenses into being good defenses. And you saw the instant impact last season. The jumps that Washington made in basically every significant defensive category from 2019 to 2020 really were remarkable. I mean, pick your category. Washington, in terms of total defense per DVOA, 27th in the NFL in the 2019 regular season, third in the NFL in the 2020 regular season. Points allowed per game. Washington, 27th in the NFL in the 2019 regular season, fourth in the NFL in the 2020 regular season. Third down defense. Washington, dead last, 32nd in the NFL in the 2019 regular season, sixth in the NFL in the 2020 regular season. Opponents yards per play. Washington, 21st in the NFL in the 2019 regular season, second in the NFL in the 2020 regular season. Red zone defense. Washington, 24th in the NFL in the 2019 regular season, fourth in the NFL in the 2020 regular season. Jack Del Rio coordinated the most improved defense in the NFL last season. Was it a perfect defense? No. But in this day and age with the way offense is done in the NFL and with the way the game is officiated, there's no such thing as a perfect defense. You know, the days of a defense along the lines of, you know, the 2000 Baltimore Ravens defense or the 2002 Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense or the 2013 Seattle Seahawks defense, even the 2015 Denver Broncos defense. I don't know that you're ever going to see defenses like those again. So the question is, can you be good enough? Can you be good, especially relative to the rest of the NFL? And Washington in the 2020 regular season was excellent relative to the rest of the NFL when it came to defense, and Jack Del Rio had a lot to do with that. One more item regarding the Washington football team. So we on Wednesday's installment of the podcast talked about Washington on Tuesday morning, having announced the hiring of Dr. Barbara Roberts as the team's first full-time director of wellness and clinical services. A full-time psychologist now is employed by Washington. This is a cutting-edge hire. Dr. Roberts now is just the fourth full-time clinician with a PhD in psychology working for an NFL franchise. And this, to me, is a smart hire. Put aside the human aspect of mental health, from just a practical football standpoint, this hire can help because mentally healthy players will be more productive players. 
Ron Rivera on Wednesday on the hiring of Dr. Barbara Roberts. Well, I think it's important, especially in light of mental health. You know, uh, Naomi Osaka has, has made a stand, and I got a tremendous amount of respect for that. Um, but, you know, I really do appreciate the, the Snyders seeing the importance of, of, of making sure that we are proactive with, with our players' mental health. Um, hiring Dr. Roberts has been is a boon as far as I'm concerned because uh, that's a big part of it. You know, there's a lot of things that these young people, these young athletes are dealing with both on and off the field, and, and we want to make sure there's a, you know, that we want to shine as much positivity on them uh, going forward. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of people that, that, that are, are, are demanding of these young people. They have a lot of responsibilities and, and they need to have somebody to help them cope with it. And so be it. But like I said, I really do appreciate, you know, the Snyders for, 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 for helping us to be proactive on this and allowing us to, to do this, wanting us to do this. This to me is, 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 is very important, very vital to our organization as we go forward. I think this is another thing that's going to help us take another step in the right direction as a football team is, is concerned. And I think Ron is right about that. You tell me what you think about anything you just heard. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash Al Galdi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, make it two consecutive wins for the Nationals. Tuesday night, 11-6 win at the Atlanta Braves to snap a five-game losing streak. Wednesday night, a 5-3 win at the Braves in another lengthy, taxing, grinded-out affair 
between these two teams. Wednesday night's game took three hours, 24 minutes. The Nats had just nine hits and two walks, but the Nats hit two home runs. The Nats scored a run in each of the final two innings of the game. The Nats figured out a way to get the job done. And so, Davey Martinez, on this Thursday, give it to us. I'm proud of the boys. And you should be, Davey. Nats now 23-29 and 29 on the season. And the Nats now with a chance to win three of four at the Braves. So, he did not have the biggest hit on Wednesday night, but it may well end up being the most significant hit moving forward in terms of what the hit signifies. Juan Soto, my friends, may well be back. There was a movie many years ago, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, how Juan Soto got his groove back in the 2021 season. Juan Soto had been hitting for no power, especially since he'd come off the 10-day injured list. Well, Juan Soto now is homered in back-to-back games. Wednesday night, Soto with a one-out, two-run homer to center field in the top of the fifth on an 0-2 pitch from lefty Brave starter Drew Smiley. The homer per stat cast when it projected 437 feet. Soto also had a one-out five-pitch walk in the top of the third. This off what happened in that 11-6 win at the Braves on Tuesday night. Soto in that game, a monster game. Three for four with a homer, two singles, a walk, four RBI, and four runs. The homer in that game for Soto, a one-out two-run shot in the top of the eighth off lefty Braves reliever Grant Dayton. So note that these two home runs and back-to-back games, each homer has come off a left-handed Braves pitcher. I don't know that we say that Soto is absolutely 100% back. To me, the telltale sign will be when the Soto shuffle is back in full effect and Soto is back to grabbing his crotch, okay? That, to me, will be the sign that the Juan Soto we know and love is back and with us. But for now, the hitting certainly feels like it's getting to where we're used to it being. Soto launching baseballs, Soto hitting bombs, Soto being what he has been over the last few seasons, which is the best hitter in Major League Baseball. But like I said, Soto's homer on Wednesday night wasn't necessarily the biggest hit in the game for the Nats. Heck, the homer may not have even been the Nats' biggest homer in the game. Jan Gomes was the number five batter on Wednesday night. He has a great history against Drew Smiley, and so Davey Martinez elevated Gomes in the Nationals lineup, and Gomes ended up coming through two for four with a big home run and a single. So he had a one-out single in a Nationals one-run second inning, and Gomes had a two-out tie-breaking solo homer in the top of the eighth for a 4-3 Nats lead. The Nats were up 3-1. They then gave up two runs, game tied at three. Gomes answered with that big solo homer in the top of the eighth inning. And Jan Gomes threw another runner out on an attempted steal. Jan Gomes gunned down Ronald Acuna Jr. on an attempted steal of second base for the first out in the bottom of the first off Acuna's leadoff four-pitch walk. Gomes now on the season 11 of 26 on runners trying to steal. He has been terrific this season when it comes to runners trying to steal. Gomes' offensive numbers have calmed down lately, but the defense has been there and a big home run for Gomes on Wednesday night. Trey Turner had a good game on Wednesday night. Number one batter, he went two for five with a double, a key RBI single, and a stolen base. Turner had a first pitch leadoff double in the Nats two-run fifth and had a two-out RBI single on a 1-2 pitch in the top of the ninth for a 5-3 Nats lead. The Gomes solo shot top of the eighth put the Nats up 4-3. The Turner-Ribby single top of the ninth on a 1-2 pitch with two outs put the Nats up 5-3. Big tack-on run provided by Trey Turner, and he had a stolen base in the inning. Now, 
there was some bad news in the game. Kyle Schwarber got injured. We don't know exactly what the ailment is. Davey Martinez, during his post-game Zoom press conference, talked about Kyle Schwarber's right knee having locked up. Uh, note, it was the left knee in which Kyle Schwarber suffered a torn ACL and LCL back in April 2016. So this does appear to be the other knee. Uh, but Kyle Schwarber got hurt on Wednesday night. Hopefully it's not serious. It's been really nice to see Kyle Schwarber come on over the last month or so. Uh, Schwarber got injured trying to make a diving catch on an Abraham Almonte pinch leadoff double in the bottom of the seventh inning. Uh, Schwarber, the batter in the game, he was the Nats' number six batter, went out full count single in the Nationals' one-run second inning. Uh, also of note on Wednesday night, Josh Bell, not Ryan Zimmerman, was the Nationals' number four batter, even though the Nats were facing a lefty pitcher in Drew Smiley. Davey Martinez after the game revealing that Zimmerman complained of some soreness of having started and played well in that Nationals win on Tuesday night. Zimmerman, the 11-6 victory, two for five with a two-run homer, a double, and two strikeouts. So this is part of the uh, Ryan Zimmerman compromise, I guess you say, in 2021. He is having a great season, but the body is failing him. Like, him playing back-to-back games is a challenge. Him playing more than he's playing, and I think we all kind of have this feeling of we want to see Ryan Zimmerman play more, but him not playing more may well not be so much a Davey thing as it is a Zimmerman health thing, and less is more with Ryan Zimmerman, and apparently it has to be a lot less to get the more with Zimmerman. I mean, that to me is telling that he's sore after playing just that one game on Tuesday night. Bell in the game on Wednesday night, Nationals cleanup batter, one for three with a walk, had a one-out four-pitch walk in the top of the third, had a one-out single in the top of the fifth despite having been down in the count at 1.12. Also, Victor Robles in the game on Wednesday night. Of course, the number nine batter, because Davey will not get off that. Victor Robles batting ninth with this pitcher batting eighth. And sure enough, that to me really cost the Nationals in what ended up being a mere one-run second inning. The Nationals have to lead the majors this season in innings that are set up to be like two, three, four-run innings and only end up being one-run innings. But John Lester as the number eight batter, comes up to bat with runners at the corners and one out in another instance of Davey batting the pitcher in the number eight spot, costing the Nats. Lester, what he end up doing? First pitch, bunt force out. So runners at the corners, one out, prime run scoring opportunity, and Lester, the pitcher, is up to bat, ends up authoring a first pitch bunt force out. Now, look, Robles came up after that and struck out on five pitches, okay? So maybe you say, well, Robles wouldn't have done any better, and maybe that's true, but I would have liked to have seen Robles and not Lester up in that spot. But Robles in the Nationals one run ninth inning was a big help. Uh, He had a two out hit by pitch despite having been down in the count of 1.02, had a stolen base, and then ended up scoring that Nationals run on the two out ribby single by Trey Turner on the one two pitch to put the Nats up 5-3. I mentioned John Lester. What a job he did on Wednesday night. John Lester was starting on three days rest and he was terrific, all things considered. One run, in five and two-thirds innings. I mean, you would have taken that from Lester on five days rest. He gives that to you on three days rest. Three strikeouts versus five hits, a home run and four singles. Two walks, 87 pitches. And Lester had a hit. He had a one-out single in the top of the fourth, despite having been down in the count at one point, one-two. Now, Lester did do the thing that we've become accustomed to him doing, which is put a lot of guys on the base paths. Uh, John Lester allowed a run in the bottom of the second on a leadoff homer by Dansby Swanson. Lester then allowed back-to-back singles, but he then induced three consecutive outs to only allow the one run in the inning. Lester in a scoreless bottom of the third had runners on first and second with no outs, but then induced three consecutive outs. And then things changed 
and Lester started actually cruising. He ended up retiring 12 of the last 13 batters he faced, including striking out Ronald Acuna Jr. and Freddie Freeman in succession in a perfect bottom of the fifth. I mean, how about that? Lester striking out Acuna and Freeman in a perfect bottom of the fifth. And understand the strikeout of Acuna, that came despite Lester throwing three straight balls to begin the plate appearance. So Acuna was up in the count 3-0, and Lester still ended up striking out one of the best players on the planet right now, and Ronald Acuna Jr. What a job by John Lester. Now look, Lester is known for having moxie and for being tough and for being someone who comes through in the big spot. John Lester is a three-time World Series champion. John Lester was the MVP of the 2016 NLCS with the Chicago Cubs. John Lester in his career has been one of the great playoff pitchers, period. So we probably shouldn't be stunned that Lester did as he did on Wednesday night. But of course, this is not peak John Lester anymore. And when a guy is doing something like starting on three days rest, and especially in Lester's case for just the fourth time in his major league career, you don't know what to expect. But Lester went out there and all things considered, did a really good job. I give John Lester a ton of credit for his start on Wednesday night. Nationals bullpen was again mixed. Uh, three Nationals relievers ended up being utilized. They combined to allow two runs in three into third innings. Davey did go with the varsity bullpen on Wednesday night. You know, Nats needed this win, wanted this win, and end up getting this win. It wasn't easy, though, like I said. So Tanner Rainey relieved John Lester, and Rainey had a very mixed outing. He struck out Guillermo Heredia on four pitches with a runner on first and two outs in the bottom of the sixth. But Rainey ended up being charged with giving up two runs in the bottom of the seventh due to giving up a leadoff double to pinch hitter Abraham Almonte and a two-out full count walk of Freddie Freeman, despite him having been down in the count at one point, one, two. Now, what was funny about that walk is that it came off back-to-back strikeouts of pinch hitter Pablo Sandoval and Ronald Acuna Jr. Daniel Hudson then came into the game, and he allowed two inherited runners to score in the bottom of the seventh. Hudson, on the second pitch he threw, gave up a two-out, two-run double to Ozzie Albies that tied the game at three. That's why that Gomes home run in the top of the eighth was so big. But Hudson comes in, and, you know, he's known for being a fireman, but lately Hudson has been more of an arsonist, okay? He's been allowing inherited runners to score. He has not looked as sharp as he looked previously in this season. And that's the thing. Davey has been leaning on Hudson a ton. Hudson's an older pitcher. You know, in his career, he's been an up-and-down pitcher, The workload has got to be lessened on Daniel Hudson here. And instead, it's like he's being used more and more. And the effectiveness is starting to lessen. Now, Hudson, to his credit, did then strike out Austin Riley on four pitches for the third out in the bottom of the seventh and did then toss a perfect bottom of the eighth that included strikeouts at Dansby Swanson and Guillermo Heredia. But the game was tied up thanks to Hudson giving up again the two-out, two-run double to Albies on the second pitch that Hudson threw. Brad Hand, though, did toss a perfect bottom of the ninth. Was nice to see that. So it wasn't flawless from the bullpen, uh, but you are able to come away with the win. Game four at the Braves Thursday afternoon at 12.20. Patrick Corbin taking on Tucker Davidson, who will be making just his third career major league start. I don't know what to expect with Patrick Corbin. He's not having a good season. His last two outings have not been impressive. His most recent start, 4-1, seven-inning loss to the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park this past Saturday afternoon in game one of a doubleheader sweep. Corbin in that game giving up four runs in five innings. He threw just 47 strikes versus 31 balls. His outing prior to that one, 6-5 win over the Orioles at Nationals Park on May 23rd. Corbin allowed four runs in five and two-thirds innings on 11 hits and two walks. Did not have a single clean inning. So 
You know, Corbin getting shelled on Thursday afternoon is very much a possibility. The Braves are a good team, have a good lineup. Guys like Acuna and Freeman and Albies going off on Corbin on Thursday afternoon. That's very plausible. But we have seen Corbin have some good outings this season, and hopefully we do get one of those on Thursday afternoon. Uh, one more item with the Nats. It is official. Steven Strasburg is back on the 10-day injured list. And personally, I don't think you see him until at least after the All-Star break, okay? I think this is going to be a lengthy stay on the 10-day IL. The Nats late on Wednesday afternoon putting Strasburg on the 10-day injured list with a neck strain. This is his second 10-day IL stint of the season. He was on the 10-day IL from April 18th, retroactive to April 15th to May 21st with right shoulder inflammation. Uh, Strasburg going on the 10-day IL with the next strain comes off, of course, what happened on Tuesday night, that 11-6 Nationals win, you know, a feel-good night, Nats snap a five-game losing streak, but Strasburg not looking good, velocity way low, ends up leaving the game off allowing a run in one and the third innings, had a very hard time throwing strikes. He's not in a good place, and I don't know what the deal is with him physically. I don't think the Nats necessarily know what the deal is with him physically, you know, because he's on the 10-day IL earlier this season due to right shoulder inflammation. Then Davey on Tuesday night talks about Strasburg dealing with tightness in his right trapezius muscle. Then on Wednesday, he gets placed on the 10-day IL with a neck strain. Sounds like the Nats are still trying to figure things out here, but you need to figure this out, or you need to at least do your darndest to figure things out here, because this is a big deal. Like we talked about at length on Wednesday's installment of the podcast, this is year two of a seven-year, 200 $45 million contract for Steven Strasburg, a contract that so far has been a complete disaster. There's no other way to say it. You got to get him right physically. And so if it takes a while, let it take a while. The important thing is that you get him back well, and hopefully when he comes back, he stays healthy and he pitches well. And maybe it's almost like a trade acquisition in the season where come mid to late July, Strasburg is back, hopefully healthy and hopefully doing well for you. I do believe you technically have a winning streak when you win back-to-back games. The Nationals, they have a winning streak now. And the Orioles, they have a winning streak now. 7-4 win over the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Tuesday night to break a 14-game losing streak. A 6-3 win over the Twins at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. So for a second consecutive show, Joe Angel, if you would. And the Orioles again in the win column. There you go, baby. Orioles with back-to-back wins. This is the Orioles' first winning streak since winning three consecutive games April 29th through May 1st. It had been more than a month since the Orioles had won even two consecutive games. The record on the season is still a woeful and pitiful 19 and 37. O's have the worst run differential in the American League at minus 62. Of course, the Orioles, as I keep saying, they are a tanking team, so do not get caught up in the record or the run differential. But yeah, back-to-back wins here for the O's. Another well-pitched game for the O's with this win on Wednesday night. And how about the circumstances of the pitching? So Matt Harvey, like John Lester, was pitching on three days rest. You know, it's funny. There are some eerie parallels between the Nationals and the Orioles season in, season out. You had the Nats and O's each with a losing streak that was snapped on Tuesday night. Now each team has won back-to-back games and each team winning the second game of the back-to-back victories via a veteran pitcher pitching on three days rest for the Nats. John Lester for the Orioles, 
Matt Harvey. So Harvey on Wednesday night was actually starting on three days rest for the first time in his career. Uh, the O's needed Harvey to go on three days rest due to the O's having played in a doubleheader last Saturday. And what was so funny is, you know, Harvey's been a mess lately. I've been talking about this. His last four starts, he'd allowed 23 earned runs in 13 and two-thirds innings. But Harvey on Wednesday night, he was essentially acting as an opener. You know, the plan was not for him to go very long, but he did well. One run in three innings. I mean, okay, you don't throw a parade over that, but it's a lot better than what Harvey had been doing. One run in three innings, three strikeouts versus two hits, a homer and a double and a walk. He threw 25 strikes versus 18 balls. So no, he was not dominant, but he ended up being effective enough. And at least for now, he maybe holds on to his spot in the rotation. We'll see. I mean, I think if Harvey had pitched in a normal fashion, you know, i.e. on four or five days rest and had gotten rocked, I'm not sure that he stays in the rotation or even stays on the team. But for now, you say, well, he was halfway decent in his last outing. And remember, prior to what had happened over his previous four starts, he had been doing pretty well. First seven starts of the season, Matt Harvey had an ERA of 360. Some nice offensive performances for the O's in the 6-3 win over the Twins at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. Ryan Mountcastle for a second straight game. Very good. Mountcastle on Wednesday night. Orioles starting first baseman at number six batter had a single in the Orioles one run fourth. He had a two out three run homer in the bottom of the seventh. Mountcastle in that 7-4 win on Tuesday night. Two out RBI double on a 1-2 pitch in the Orioles 4-1 third and a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the eighth. Also, DJ Stewart. How about the game he had on Wednesday night? DJ was the Orioles starting left fielder, a number five batter, leadoff first pitch single in the Orioles one run fourth, two out two run homer on a one two pitch in the bottom of the fifth, and a two out full count walk in the Orioles three run seventh, despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. So very nice to see two young bats do well on Wednesday night in Mountcastle's case. It's the last two nights. And really with Mountcastle, it's the last few weeks. Mountcastle has been a lot better, but this is what the Orioles season is about, tracking the progress of young players. Ryan Mountcastle was taken by the O's with the number 36 overall pick in the 2015 draft. DJ Stewart was taken by the O's with the number 25 overall pick in the 2015 draft. And, you know, DJ, it's been a weird year for him. He missed multiple weeks in March due to a left hamstring injury, began the season on the 10-day injured list. Hopefully, he's getting himself going here. One other thing I wanted to make mention of with the O's, so they had a shakeup at catcher this week. The O's on Monday morning optioned catcher Chance Sisko to AAA Norfolk and selected the contract of Austin Wins from Norfolk. Now, Wynn started two of the three games in this series against the Twins. Did not do well. He went over eight with two strikeouts. Cisco, though, had been doing really poorly. You know, it's a shame with Chance Cisco because there was a time in which he was viewed as the Orioles' catcher of the future, and he just has never been able to figure it out at the major league level. So Chance Cisco is in his age 26 season. He gets demoted on Monday. His slash line for the season, how about this? Batting average of 154, on base percentage of 247, slugging percentage of 185. I mean, my God, a slugging percentage of 185, uh, just not good at all. He has mixed defensive metrics as well. The O's took Cisco in the second round of the 2013 MLB draft. You look at his career, you know, because sometimes it takes a guy a while to get going. And sometimes, especially with catchers, it takes a while for a guy to figure it out offensively. 
But San Francisco has 598 career regular season plate appearances at the major league level. I mean, that's not nothing. Nearly 600 career regular season plate appearances at the major league level. Career batting average of 199. Career on base percentage of 319. Career slugging percentage of 339. He just cannot hit at the major league level at least not so far. It's a shame. And, you know, and Austin wins. I mean, this is not someone who's a catcher of the future. 10th round pick in the 2013 draft. He's in his age 30 season. Obviously, the Orioles' true catcher of the future is the phenom, Adley Rutschman. But in the meantime, you'd like to be able to figure some things out. You'd like to maybe have a piece uh, that you can utilize as a backup catcher, maybe trade to another team. And uh, it's unfortunate that things have not worked out for Chance Cisco. Oh, still do have the former national on the team in terms of the catching situation in Pedro Severino, but he's not had a very good season so far. No game for the O's on Thursday. They on Friday night begin a three-game series against the Cleveland Indians at Camden Yards. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Special guest on Friday's installment of the podcast, Washington football team insider Ben Standig of The Athletic DC. We'll talk a lot about the WFT and also talk Wizards with Ben. He's a huge Wizards fan. He's covered the team, followed the team forever. I'm sure he's got a lot to say about the end of the Wizards season. We will, of course, have more fallout from the end of the Wizards season, including Wizards general manager Tommy Shepard due to speak to the media Thursday morning with head coach Scott Brooks following. At least he's head coach for now. Um, so we'll see what goes down here, but we could have major news to be getting into from a Wizards standpoint on Friday's installment of the podcast. Also, we're due to hear from Washington football team offensive coordinator Scott Turner on Thursday. He's due to speak via Zoom press conference after Thursday's OTA practice. So we'll have some Scott Turner sound to get into on Friday's installment of the show. And I'll talk Nationals as they try to make it three consecutive wins at the Atlanta Braves, game four of the series on Thursday afternoon. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. Yeah, that's just where he started. Uh, we'll, we'll work them from there, you know, like Coach can talk about as much as he'd like. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what we're doing with certain people. 